from UWM, it's Partners for Health, a podcast about health, research, and everything in between. Each episode on Partners for Health, you'll hear from two different researchers discussing what motivates them to do what they do and inform their research interests. Partners for Health is an initiative between the College of Nursing, the College of Health Sciences, the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare, and the Joseph J. Zilber School of Public Health at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Recording facilities are made possible by the UWM Libraries here in fantastic Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Welcome to Partners for Health. I'm Carrie Wade, Health Sciences Librarian, and one of your producers, alongside David Fraser from the Center for Urban Population Health. Together, we're hoping to bring you fascinating conversations between researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee who focus on health-related research topics. We hope that you find these conversations enlightening. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our researchers that we have um, for you to listen to today. Uh, first up is um, a conversation between David J. Pate and Heidi Luft. David J. Pate is a chair and associate professor of social work at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. He's also an affiliated associate professor with the Institute of Research on Poverty at UW-Madison, as well as an affiliate for child and family well-being at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, an affiliate with the Department of African and Africa Diaspora Studies at UWM, and an affiliate with the University of Honors College at UWM. He is an expert on low-income African-American men, fatherhood, and child support. He studies how black men are affected by the social welfare system and the challenges that impede their ability to maintain economic security. He is a well-seasoned scholar and instructor and has loads of accolades to go along with that. And I think you'll really enjoy the conversation and some of his work that he talks about in this podcast. In conversation with David, we have Dr. Heidi Luft from the College of Nursing, where she's an assistant professor. Her program of research is informed by the fundamental question, how do we promote safe and healthy relationships in a way that is effective, sustainable, and acceptable for individuals living in resource-poor settings within the U.S. and abroad? Much of her research focuses on Latinx populations in the U.S. and in the Dominican Republic, where a lot of her dissertation research took place, and she's continuing some of that work as a researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She also works on interdisciplinary research teams here and uh, is engaged in community-based research. It's a really fascinating conversation to hear the two of them discuss what David has accomplished and what Heidi hopes to accomplish. And you'll see a lot of great intersections between their work. And we hope you enjoy what they've discussed here. It's been a really fun one to work on and edit and put together. So what? what why did you get a PhD? I, I did my undergraduate degree. I got a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from UW-Madison. And 
So I kind of like just haphazardly chose nursing as a career on our orientation day <laughs> because they were like, all right, everybody group off into your majors because we're going to enroll in classes. And I had no idea that was coming. So I was like, well, nursing sounds like a good option. So I took that path. But very quickly, once I got into the nursing school, um, I realized that clinical nursing was not probably for me. But I really loved what nursing stands for, like the holistic approach. It's, you know, like mm. kind of like social work, yes, right? Exactly. Um, so I was still happy that I was in that field. And I actually didn't even know you could get a PhD in nursing until one of my friends who was in the early entry PhD program at Madison told me about it. And I was like, what do you even do as a nurse researcher? <laughs> She's like, well, you put together research projects okay. and you research different health topics. Um, so I actually, after that conversation, I immediately went to whoever the contact person was that she told me about and um, looked into it. And I applied to the early entry PhD program at Madison and got in and then um, was in that program for a year or so. And life situations took me to Salt Lake City and mm -hmm. kind of put my PhD in a hiatus. So I worked um, in oncology and in home hospice, which mm -hmm. was a lot of, I think, almost more like social work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, but uh, my partner at the time, we knew that he was probably going to be transferred out to New York. So I started looking into nursing schools because I knew that I wanted to finish my PhD mm -hmm. out in New York. So... So, yeah, I applied to Columbia and amazingly got in. And I, yeah, that's like my long story, I guess. But I'm so glad that I did because what I love about research is that it's like, it's the best of all worlds. Like, you have some analytical parts mm -hmm. of your job. Exactly. But you also have, like, this freedom of creativity, which I really appreciate because... Yes. Deep down, I think I am a fairly creative person. Yes. <laughs> so it's just a, a a place. And there's so much, like, you can choose, usually, you can choose the area that you're interested in and that you want to make an impact in. So, um, yeah, I just, I'm really glad that I took that career path. Yeah, yeah I'm from Philadelphia. Oh, you are? So, uh, yeah, so I, know, I know New York very well. Yeah. And I used to go all the time, so I really miss the East Coast a lot. An awful lot. But I've been pretty much raised as an adult in the Midwest because I went to school in Detroit mm -hmm. for undergrad. Then I went to Chicago for my master's. Okay. And it's kind of similar to you. I, I didn't. I put my PhD on hiatus but because I remember being asked by a professor right before I graduated with my master's degree, you should get a PhD. And I thought, a PhD? What kind of nerd gets a PhD? Um, <laughs> that's not me. I just want to do direct practice, yeah. and I would love that. And um, now that I am, now that I have mm -hmm. a PhD, and I got it, I got it in a weird way in that my um, kids were two and five, and one day I woke up and said to my wife, "I don't want to work anymore. I want to go to school." And she said, "Oh, really? <laughs> I said, How are we going to live if you just go to school?" And uh, I said, "It'll work. It'll work." Mm -hmm. And I got, I applied to only two schools, got accepted at both, mm -hmm. and went to Madison for my PhD. Okay. And my kids, my daughter and I started school the same day. She started kindergarten, and I started my PhD program. And my story. kids are now 25 and 28. Okay. So I did it much later in life, and I wish, and now I regret that I didn't 
started earlier because I just love my PhD. I love my doctoral work mm-hmm. and I love my professor role so much. And I really do find it gives you so much opportunity to be creative mm-hmm. and to do things you really want to do. Yeah. Um, of course, you don't like the bureaucracy of every anything. I don't. I don't like that, but I do like the creativity that this job brings and allows me to also challenge a social justice issue that I'm very interested in mm-hmm. um, across in my own discipline, but also across disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and so, what what is now? What do you really study? What is your area of work that you do again? You said you do sexual health. Yeah. works, but do you focus on men? Do you focus on women? <clears throat> do you do both? That's a good question. So initially I was focusing on women okay. um, because I, I think kind of like the underlying goal of my research project is sexual health equity mm-hmm. um, with a focus on Latinos in the U.S. and Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, but now that I'm... So I'm, I'm focusing on adolescents and one of the huge gaps that I've found in research is that, like, if you're thinking about sexual health or intimate partner violence, which is kind of the direction mm-hmm. I'm going right now, actually, there's all this research on women and, like, interventions about how to, like, avoid, you know, being the victim or services for women who are become who have become victims. But at least I can only speak for the literature on Latinos and Hispanics. There's, like no focus on the boys, like, and their role in sexual health. Um, and they're, you know, you know, let's create interventions early on, primary prevention to help teach boys and girls safe, healthy, respectful interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a huge gap in the literature that I'm really interested in. Yeah. Um, why don't you, I'm really interested in what you were referring to, your <laughs> social justice issue. Can you tell me more about that? And, and I kind of want to go back to what you were saying, too, and kind of how my social justice work mm-hmm. started. Because I've, I've always focused on males, and particularly only focused on black males. And so my initial work in the hospital um, was looking at the whole idea of the role of males in sexual reproduction or in sexual health. And I wrote an article that won an award. And I was I was 24 when that happened, because me and my director wrote an article that won an award. <laughs> For and those of you who can't see us, <laughs> my jaw is dropped. Because <laughs> and we uh, we and we because we, we were looking at being we were one of the few centers in the country at the time, and there was a place in, in Columbia, as a matter of fact, that Bruce okay. Web Bruce Weber, I think is his name, and he runs a, a clinic out of Columbia's hospital, and I used to be okay. his he used to be my colleague that I would work with around how do we do more work on getting the word out about male reproductive health and sexual yeah. responsibility. Um, and that was a big initiative in the 80s um, that okay. was promoted um, around how do you do more work, late 80s or so, uh, around teen pregnancy prevention. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of funding was coming down for that. But And so when I looked at the issue of men in particular over my lifetime, what I've tried to do is kind of just elevate some of the issues they have. And uh, being an academic, I've learned some other theories through my colleagues, like the life course perspective of mm-hmm. looking at from infancy to death. What are some of the markers that will kind of uh, indicate where you will be in your life course if something happens to you, like you witness a gun, sh- you witness someone being killed in front of you, mm-hmm. or you don't have adequate housing, or you don't have adequate food? Like, how does that really mark your morbidity and mortality? And I got very interested in that. As a youth, I just didn't call it life course perspective. I didn't know right. academics had a fancy name that I could <laughs> use. And so coming here, colleagues of mine who, are, who work in the gerontology mm-hmm. world, um, would use that as one of their theoretical perspectives that I've learned to kind of learn to l- use a lot. So my work now goes across infant mortality work, 
um, to work that's very policy related around child support, mm -hmm. um, to work that's looking also at um, trying to do videos or um, develop apps to help okay. people understand just what the stages of pregnancy are. And it's all focused on how you educate men, but also how are men uh, treated or seen as parents or not seen as parents. Uh, particularly very poor men. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I've been trying to do across, and I've been doing it across disciplines. Um, one, because my work has been so focused on poverty, too. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm someone who's known as a poverty expert in the country. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, I'm curious about a number of things that you just said. Um, so how much do you know about, like, the Dominican Republic or I the Dominican... I don't know much. I was going to ask you, could you tell yeah. me more about just what is it like to be there and live there? Yes. What are some of the issues they confront? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the first things that I want to say is like that they are primarily, I mean, they're on the racial spectrum everywhere, but primarily African Latinos, Afro Latinos. Um, so I was wondering, your work is exclusively with African Americans, but that's not inclusive of Afro Latinos, no. like Puerto Rican, Black Puerto Ricans, Black Mexicans. I, no, I, yeah, I guess you can have yeah. African American Mexicans or. I tend to work with Black Americans. Okay. Um, and I'm someone who doesn't use the word African American. Okay. I tend to use Black American, so I may use it interchangeably. Mm -hmm. But I'm someone who focuses on the fact that Black Americans are generally are people who are parents for former slaves and they're American and they've been designated as Black. And Africa is such a big country, mm -hmm. continent, that you often don't know who you are and where you come from. So I tend to focus on those who are unfortunately more marginalized based on historical issues that are structural within our country. So I teach a policy class and I mm -hmm. tend to look at how the structural issues um, affect people's morbidity and mortality. Mm -hmm. And so I tend to look at toxicity as it pertains to policy in particular. Okay. Um, and that's why I've been able to work across disciplines with people, particularly lawyers, uh, law professors um, I've worked with um, who, were, who did some fascinating work. And I've been, you know, helped being involved with them around research. I would be so interested in. So the Dominican Republic has the uh, not exactly the same history as the U.S., um, mm -hmm. but they also um, have a history of slavery. Oh, definitely. And so. I am curious, like, I don't know if you have any information about this, but I would be curious to know if, you know, like, which of kind of the struggles can be applied to both cultures mm -hmm. and how that historical trauma is similar and different. Yeah. I think, you know, for the Dominican Republic, since I don't know a lot about their mm -hmm. government structure. Yeah. In, in America, our government structure has purposely instituted segregation. We purposely have right. federal laws that yeah. have reinforced by race or how we socially had constructed race mm -hmm. to be separate. Right. Um, so right. here, those who have had, had the majority power makes it in a, makes it in a, makes, puts you in a space where you are seen as less than. Mm -hmm. And historically, that just causes a lot of problems. It's kind of it's very interesting to have this conversation, particularly this year, because 400 years ago, the first slave arrived, 1619. Okay. And so, in Jamestown. Mm -hmm. And so, it's just very interesting to reflect on where are people who came as slaves, um, where what's their status now? And mm -hmm. I think that when we look at um, movies or we think about Trayvon Martin or we think about some of the people I see in Milwaukee on a regular mm -hmm. basis over the last... Tw I've been doing research in Milwaukee for 21 years. Wow. No, since maybe long... Yes, 21 years I've been, a, I've been doing research here and documenting it. And... 
it seems to have gotten worse to me mm-hmm. um, because people seem more disenfranchised. But also, it just seems unfortunate that we have had, with the, I think, important discussion we've had around race, um, there's still not enough researchers who do study race in a way that looks at the structural implications of what that means historically. Yes. We tend to focus on the behavioral issues and mm-hmm. not the structural issues. And I'm a researcher who really looks more at the be- structural issues. Mm-hmm. I'm not so concerned about behavioral because whatever the structure is will set up your behavior. If you feel you're free and you have access, you act in one way. And if you mm-hmm. feel you're not free and you don't have access, you act in another way. That, so I teach the cultural diversity class okay. to pre-nursing students. Mm. And we talk about the different levels of racism. I think it's Jones's, mm-hmm. the institutionalized, mm-hmm. personally mediated, and then internalized. Mm-hmm. And so we do talk about um, institutionalized racism. And that's something that... I mean, admittedly, before I taught that class, I wasn't very familiar with, but it's something that I've become just incredibly, um, I don't know if fascinated is the right word, but just like really interested in learning more about. Maybe I'll have to have you come talk to my class. I would love to come <laughs> talk to your class. Yes. Um, but I, I guess, how, so how do you incorporate a racial analysis in your work? In the Dominican Republic, the race functions a little bit differently. Mm. Um, because of historical differences compared to the U.S. Um, What would be most relevant looking in the DR is, um, you know, whether people identify as Haitian or Dominican, because I think there's more Mm. racism based on, um, you know, whether you're Dominican or Haitian and Haitians being oftentimes blacker than Mm -hmm. Dominicans and that playing into it. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I get my research rolling in the U.S., I was actually just thinking of doing like some type of study, like in Milwaukee, just, you know, get a study done here domestically to get things rolling, Um, doing some type of survey and analyzing it by race or doing a secondary data analysis Mm -hmm. of the youth youth behavioral risk surveillance survey mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever survey um, captured ethnicity and race and mm-hmm. then doing some analyses. So I have a an undergraduate research student right now pu- trying to pull out some surveys, um, like nationwide surveys, yeah. and then seeing if they look at those two variables. Yeah. I, th- I think it's really mm-hmm. one thing I, I, I wish more research would do and and I'm really glad to hear that you are, you have that interest, mm-hmm. is that we would, you know, people need to really do more of an intersectionality. We look at yes. um, well, the work we do by race, gender, and class, mm-hmm. and understanding where the power lays and how yeah. the structure lays. And um, that's what I, I, I happen to be married to a lawyer uh, who's made mm-hmm. me really think more about how policy works and how um, important, and you're in the social work field, your, your life is really legislated by policy, by legal right. statutes. And I never thought of that. All I thought worried about was, can I get someone diapers? Can I get them a token to get on the bus? Can I be sure yes. they get their food stamps or their Medicaid? Um, but all of those things are laws mm-hmm. and statutes mm-hmm. that, are legis- that are run, you know, are controlled by the state and the federal government. Um, and with my work I did with a law professor at UW-Madison, uh, for five years, we sat in courtrooms and observed people's, how they were treated, particularly men in particular, um, how they were treated when they owed a debt that was called child support, but that debt was owed to the state, which many people don't know when a person gets a TANF benefit and what we call W-2 here, 
she she generally she being the mother generally who has children in her care, she can't get that benefit unless she names the father of the child. And if she doesn't name the father of the child, she could be denied that benefit because the state wants to be reimbursed for the money they've paid to this mother for that TANF benefit. And that's in every state in the country. But Wisconsin is one of the more generous states. Um, they return, they get, and, and so the state will, if you give the name of the father and you know his social security number or some identifying information and they track him down, um, they will call him into court, they set an order, and the order starts, he starts being charged. Um, mm-hmm. what he, and I think every father should make their contribution because they have a child and all of that. But very poor families who I look at, who generally make, the families I look at generally make about $6,000 or less a year, oh, sometimes as much as $12,000. And I've done that now, like I said, for 20 years. And it's, it's very interesting how we, um, we go after those very poor families, but I think we often don't look at what are the contributions men are making and so it's been very good to work with an occupational science professor who looks at how do you define fatherhood as an occupation. Mm-hmm. And if I look with a lawyer, how are the laws supposed to really work and make, and make it all happen? When as a social worker, I'm looking at what are some of the ecological factors that may affect the way people make decisions mm-hmm. when they've allowed me to now broaden my way of looking at it from a very structural um, policy focus, which is what there's some things that we are guaranteed as citizens particularly due process, which a lot of people are not getting. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have never known that unless I worked across a discipline and worked outside of my discipline because I'm not taught that in social work school. I'm taught how to be, right. a, you know, not a caretaker, but someone who knows how to deliver services right. and to think somewhat critically, um, hopefully, about why they didn't get those services, which tends to be focused on their behavior or the choices they've made, which mm-hmm. I, I tend to be furthest away from that now because I just think we all make choices based on what's available to us. Um, And when you have some people who are in in what I call concentrated poverty um, or spaces, they unfortunately will do things because that's all they know. It's not because they want to, but what else is there? What's their other option? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, like, even with your work, it, I, I know that in, in some of the slave trade was much more active in South America. Mm-hmm. And we have a very... Our, our slave trade was much worse here, but in those places where there's, they, they have a concentration of people who look like them, mm-hmm. there tends to be more equality, even though there still may be some discrimination, some prejudice mm-hmm. around skin color. Right. I remember so vividly being in Africa... And because I was a lighter-skinned black person, I got treated much differently Mm -hmm. than people who were with me who were much darker. And I was as shocked that even in Africa, (laughs) I'm not going to get equality (laughs) um, because of skin color. Um, But that's something I think what you brought up was really interesting. Um, Do you find it hard to recruit people based on your race? I mean, people don't know that you're white. I do. Um, Um, And being a woman as well. Yeah, so... That's a really good question. Um, when I did my dissertation, there were two phases. I had started with interviews and then I did some surveys. And I recruited and did the interviews. Wow. And then I was like, mm, I feel like people aren't really you know, being honest with me. Um, there was a lot of hesitation from certain like subgroups of women. And so for I, I scrounged up some funds to hire somebody from the clinic that I was working with to, to recruit and do the surveys with the women who was a Dominican woman, had worked at the clinic for a long time. Um, and she faced similar issues because trust is mm-hmm. such yes, an exactly. issue in it's the Dominican Republic, mm-hmm. even amongst, you know, 
their own community. Yeah. Yeah, Just, I think probably because there's so much corruption. Um, also they have the history of Trujillo who was just like a terrible, terrible dictator. Mm -hmm. Um, and would have secret armies that would go out and like kill off people who were speaking against them. So there's a lot of, I mean, even though that's not the situation today, they have a democracy. I think that historical trauma has been, you know, Mm -hmm. like those messages have been passed down generation to generation, um, just to be really wary of other people and, um, not as quick to trust. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, I mean, but even still, uh, in any, in any setting, whether it was in the DR or here in the U S and Milwaukee recruiting Latinos, it's really important to me um, if I have the resources to be able to a employ somebody from that community, mm-hmm. you know, give back through my research. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I just think it's so important to, to have, you know, somebody who looks like you recruiting you <laughs> instead of this privileged white <laughs> researcher. Well, it's, <laughs> so. it's interesting you say that because my work, when I first did my work, I had more problem recruiting because people thought I was the police because I'm oh. black and I'm male and I talk somewhat what they would say, David, you talk too white. They mm-hmm. always told me, would tell me that. And however they define whiteness was that I, whatever they defined it, I mm-hmm. wasn't someone from their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So I, it's just, it's, I've, I've had to really rethink um, what is the best recruitment for black men uh, for, or for black people in this given communities. Now my recruitment issues are nothing because people know me. I've been mm-hmm. here 20 years and right. people can vouch for me and give me entree. But my initial work was really hard because um, I remember so clearly when I first did my recruitment for my dissertation work in Milwaukee mm-hmm. and my advisor wanted to be a random sample for qualitative work, which was weird. But anyway, I did it. <laughs> and so I would just go to people's houses at random and knock on their door and say, I want to recruit you for a study. And they didn't know how I got their name, how I got their address. <laughs> and um, I remember one time I did an interview where I had to sit on the roof of a car because the guy was a drug dealer, mm-hmm. and I didn't know that. And he said, you're sitting on the roof of the car with me because if you do anything wrong, you will be hurt. And um, that was my best interview I had. I still remember that interview so well. It was, wow. it was so eye-opening. But it also made me, what I like about my work is it makes me, it keeps me, it keeps me centered and it keeps me reminded, it reminds me often, just because you have a PhD, you don't mean you're all that. That Mm -hmm. just means you just have a PhD and you got a degree and that's it. And even working with other colleagues who I've had the opportunity to do uh, work with across, you know, disciplines has been great too, because they also, um, I'm always intrigued to see how people respond who who are not used to what I see all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I make it a point to do this work, even though people may see it as dangerous, how, in quotations, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. I think that someone needs to be telling their stories of what's going on with people who are very poor um, and documenting that. Um, and, and also, if I can make a difference in policy, which I have been able to do that as well um, through the work I've done, I think that's important as well. And, and but it's, it's hard work. You have, to, you have to really figure out ways to do self-care and also times to step away so that you're not getting overwhelmed with what you're seeing because what you see is um, kind of, unfortunately, not the best things you will mm-hmm. see. And, uh, you know, and I think probably with your work, too, you have to learn how to be respectful in every situation 
Um, and I, what I've and, and going back to what we had talked about earlier, one thing I did with my undergrads, I used to hire a lot of female white undergrads to do my work with me, because the men would love to talk to them. <laughs> this love, not and it's part of it probably was something sexist, but also it was right. something where no one would ever, they, they said no one ever talks to us mm-hmm. from the university. No one ever comes and talks to us as humans. And I would have, we would always have a meal or I would take them to dinner or I would, um, and one time my students, I did a documentary and they were totally in control of it, of what they saw about black men as fathers. And uh, that was still my most prized thing I did, even though mm-hmm. the academy doesn't see it as a valuable thing I did. Um, I, I still consider that my best thing mm-hmm. I did as an academic still, yeah. um, where these men talked about what does it mean to be a father, what does it mean to be poor, what does it mean to live in Milwaukee. It's something that I think was really one of the most valuable things I did with students. I had six white students who really wanted mm-hmm. to understand. And I still hire students now. Um, the surf program we have here is so great. I mean, yes. it's like the ideal thing for an academic to be able to, if you have students who, are, who need some money and you want to mm-hmm. work with them, have you and you do you do yeah, surf? Yeah, that's uh, that's the that's student not, I was referring to who okay. was like looking for all those surveys for me. Uh, <laughs> oh, great! Yeah, the surf students, I love surf students. Yeah. So, uh, big ups for the surf program. Yes. Um, what What are some of the things that you see as your biggest challenges to your work? Mm, I mean, I'm so new. So one of the biggest challenges has been um, moving institutions mm-hmm. has been really tough. Um, not really tough, but. You know, like you, I feel like I'm starting from ground zero How because long have you been here? Uh, I'm. I started last August. Oh, you're so, really new. Oh, yeah, new well, year. not last August. Last last August. So. so two years ago. Yeah. Okay. So year your and third and a half. year. Yeah. Okay. Second. Second year. Okay. Yep. Okay. Halfway through my second year. Okay. Um, but yeah, so like making connections has taken a long time, and just like getting the higher ups to understand. Mm-hmm. Um that community-based work when you're doing it right mm-hmm. um, takes a long time because yeah. you have to build rapport, like, yeah. in any situation, but particularly for somebody when you're an outsider, like me being a white woman and having my research focus being on Latino health. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a huge thing. Like, it's it's really important to develop that trust and rapport, yeah. and it takes time. Um so, yeah, I guess both of those things have been um, kind of one of the barriers, which is why, actually, I kind of decided to refocus on the Dominican Republic because I knew I could move forward with that a little bit quicker mm-hmm. and then, like, try to get something parallel mm-hmm. going on here in the meantime. Um, yeah, and I think just mentorship has been challenging for whatever reason I'm only not for whatever reason because everybody's insanely busy um but uh yeah that's been a little bit challenging I think I as I was saying and as we've been talking about like I love what I do so much that it's you know it's really worth it and I I know it's just you know a matter of time for all of those issues that I'm coming up against so yeah I I guess yeah and when I hear you talk I think about when I first started because I started here in 2005 Mm -hmm. um and I was a postdoc at UW-Madison three years prior to that but I also got my PhD from Madison so um and it took me seven and a half years to get my PhD because it was qualitative 
And I took one year where I just, my advisor was on sabbatical. So I went on sabbatical, (laughs) even though that was bad, right? Yeah. But um, I did that. So it made it one year longer. Mm -hmm. But also I was trying to raise these two kids and be married and work. And I worked full time while I was a PhD student. Oh, yeah, that's a challenge, too. Because as I was mentioning, (laughs) I've got an eight-month-old. So that, you know. It's just like, how do you do that and still smile later Mm -hmm. in in your life? Um, (laughs) I'm sure it's affected my morbidity and mortality in some way. Oh, my gosh. I think about that all the time when I'm up at 3 a.m. <laughs> and going to bed at 10 and yes. then up at 3 a.m. again. Yes. Not because of my daughter. She's no. awesome. But because I need to get in like a full day of work exactly. before my husband goes out to work. Yes. And then I have to take care of her. Exactly. So yes. it's just the crazy things we do as yes. parents. It's, it's wild. Oh it's just amazing like how you, you know, anyway, that's a, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, Maybe yeah. we'll figure that out. <laughs> but I, I think, how do you get your funding? Do you, funding, do you go to the Dominican Republic now? Are you planning to go? You said you're doing parallel work. Do you have funding yeah. for visits to the Dominican Republic? So I have funding right now through the Office of Research. They, I don't know if you've heard of it, but they have a collaborative research team grant. No. Yeah, so um, there's still time to hand in an application if you want to. <laughs> but they're giving... Um, they have this call for people who are interested in learning how to develop an effective collaboration or interdisciplinary team because that's such a push now in federal funding and just in general. I think that's where peop- where research is moving, which is totally natural for you and I mm-hmm. in nursing and social work because we're used to working across yes. disciplines. Um, but so I applied to do... Um, a grant focused on cultural humility. So again, the grant was all about, we're learning how to make an effective team structure, effective team processes, so that once the grant is over, we've developed this solid team for when we do start running with our research. Um, But we've all come together around the topic of cultural humility. So we've got nurses, urban studies, English, because her specialty is cross-cultural rhetoric. Oh, um, and then we've got a nurse practitioner from Aurora Walker's Point Community Clinic and the Global Health Consortium. Um, so that's funding that I have right now, but that's not funding my work in the DR. What I've got, you know, I've got some startup funds and I'm applying for some small grants just to, you know, build the CV, but I also um, am going to apply for a K award, a career award through NIH um, in spring. And I've linked up with somebody who's using the intervention that I want to, I want to test the feasibility of implementing a teen dating violence prevention intervention. That's, it's evidence-based here in the U.S. And I want to see how that translates or doesn't in the DR with teens because they've got the highest rates of intimate partner homicide in the Dominican Republic in Latin America. So um, violence is a really, a really serious issue that the country, like the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Women are really focusing on. And there's a lot of efforts around it. But a lot of what they have going on right now is actually um, services for people who have been victims, Mm -hmm. not that primary prevention so that's like a huge, I mean, in my eyes, it seems like a really big need. So anyway, coming full circle, um, I met up with one of the researchers, um, Jeff Temple. He's down in Texas and he's using, he's got active funding for this 
teen violence prevention intervention um, to test the feasibility and the efficacy of it. Um, and he agreed to be my primary mentor. Wow. So we're going to try to put together a really great application for that, which hopefully will springboard me forward into like an R01, a bigger mm-hmm. NIH grant and right. a more um, productive career. Okay. But yeah, for now, it's just small internal grants um, through the Office of Research, um, some grants through Sigma Theta Tau, which is the Honor Society for Nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a member of the National Association of Hispanic Nurses. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've got some funding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so I've got a couple of questions for you. And if you'd like to hear what those questions are and David's amazing answers to them, please stay tuned uh, and keep an eye out for episode two of Partners for Health, a podcast about health research and everything in between, uh, which will be posted at uwm.edu health on the Partners for Health website. Partners for Health is a collaborative initiative between the College of Nursing, the College of Health Sciences, the Helen Bader School of Social Welfare, and the Joseph J. Zilber School of Public Health at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I also want to give a big thank you to my co-producer, David Fraser, who helped coordinate this interview. He was very instrumental in getting these two amazing people in this room together to have this fantastic conversation. We'll be coordinating more interviews like this in the future for Partners for Health, a podcast about health research and everything in between. And we appreciate you listening and stay tuned for more in the future.